The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. All right, welcome to the Chronic Podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Marble. It's the offseason, but goddammit, we still got to talk Saints football, and there's only one week of football left with the Super Bowl, so uh, what else are we going to do? Uh, as always, we're joined by Andrew Juge of thesaintsnation.com. Uh, Andrew, I would like to, uh, along with all Saints fans and you, uh, congratulate the Atlanta Falcons for blowing the biggest lead in the history of the NFC Championship game. They were winning 17 to nothing, and they coughed it up and lost 28 to 24. Um, you know, and, and part of me wants to, to bang on them for all sorts of, you know, Mike Smith can't coach, he can't adjust. But part of me is thinking, oh, my God, if Harry Douglas doesn't fall down, we have an Atlanta-Baltimore Super Bowl. Well, that wasn't even a catch, Ralph. Well, I mean, I, you're right about that, but what I'm saying is if he doesn't just fall down for no apparent le- reason, he's wide open, he's walking in. Yeah, yeah, true. You, you know, um, but, you know, I, the, the strange thing about that game was I thought Matt Ryan was – superb the first half but Atlanta couldn't make adjustments uh and I'm starting to think like Mike Smith is like Jim Mora and Marty Schottenheimer 2.0 like he's a he's a really good coach in the fact that he's won a ton of games and you can't knock him and say he's no good but he just can't get Atlanta over the hump in the playoffs and I don't see I don't see how you can look at Atlanta and say, oh, they're young, they're going to get better. I mean, you could say that about Seattle maybe or Washington. But Atlanta, this is their bunch, and they're not going to make a bunch of changes to it. I mean, they are kind of what they are. Yeah, I mean, Michael Turner's on his last leg. John Abraham's on his last leg. Donnie Gonzalez is probably done. So they've got some they've got some older players. But um, I think the main thing to take away from this is uh, Atlanta's been playing like this all season, Ralph, where yeah. at times they've had big leads, at times they've come back, um, but they've always let their opponents kind of hang around. That, that's been their MO all season. And frankly, it's remarkable they won as many games as they did because they really came down to numerous nail-biters. Um, and I, I just think when, when it was a perfect combination of sometimes they weren't putting teams away, other times they'd get in a big hole early. Um, but by and large, the, the Falcons' way of winning this year was to basically lay down and eat clock for the majority of second halves and count on Matt Ryan to make something happen in the last minute of the game. And, um, you know, I, I have to give him kudos. I mean, a lot like Eli Manning a couple of years ago and last year, um, or a few years ago and last year, I mean, he was excellent all year in the two-minute offense and really – um, was one of the best in the league, if not the best at handling those game-type situations. Um, and it really got them a lot of nail-biting wins. But um, that's the thing. You know, you play enough times like that. You know, that, that's the thing about the Saints, man. When they won the Super Bowl in 2009, they got a 17-0 lead on you, and it was over. Forget it. You know, you're done. You get down three scores to that offense, it was over. You had no chance. But – no, the Falcons haven't made any team feel like that. And they, they, they keep letting teams hang around, hang around, and eventually, Ralph, that's going to come bite, that's going to come back to bite you. You know, Matt Ryan's not going to be able to pull off every time. And, you know, in that game, he injured his shoulder pretty badly. It was visible. He could barely hold his arm up. And that, that final drive, he was playing with one arm, you know, his throwing arm. But uh, I definitely think it affected his accuracy particularly on that last ball to Tony Gonzalez, which is right, way behind him. Yeah, I mean, and people are like, well, it's, it's his left shoulder. Dude, if, if his left shoulder, say it's separated or whatever, that's an incredible amount of pain 
to try to take that snap and try to focus on what you need to do. Um, yep. You know, yep. and, and and you know, drop, that's that's a thing where it's tough on quarterbacks. You've been the starter all year. You started the game. You want to finish it, but at some point, um, you got to take yourself out. You know, if you're hurt, and and Archer three is the same thing. You know, these these quarterbacks are stubborn, but if your guys hurt, you know, the pickups, you know, they with time they can make accurate throws, and if they're healthy, I mean, you got to think about making that change. Now, yeah, you know, I, he's fortunate he didn't take a hit. You know, we. We talked about that RG3 game and how everyone in the stadium and outside the stadium saw what happened to RG3 coming. You know, before he got had that injury, we all knew it was coming. It was just a matter of when. He was playing on one leg and he was only going to make it worse. But Matt Ryan's lucky he didn't take a huge hit on that uh, Helm Harris because yeah. he dropped his shoulder in, into the ground one more time and, you know, maybe he's starting the season on PUP next year instead of, you know, a four-week recovery. Yeah, and the thing about it, you know, everybody's like, well, San Francisco got went to the NFC Championship game and lost, and they got back this year, so maybe Atlanta can do the same. But to me, Atlanta is an older team, like the Saints are, so that could be a problem for the Saints as well. But to me, Atlanta was a 10-win team that won 13 games because they won all the close games, and that just doesn't break your way every year. And well, I'd like to. I'd like to see who they draft. You know, who they pick up in the off season. I mean, you know, obviously, I think there's going to be some changes to their to their lineup. So, you know, before I make any decisions on what I think they're going to be like, I'd like to see the roster changes. But um, I I think it was kind of a perfect storm for Atlanta. And uh, you know, and obviously, I'm biased. Ralph, you know I despise them. I probably hate the Falcons more than your average Saints fan. So, um, you know, it's not not healthy for me to talk about it too much. But I I will say this, and and this is not me being biased. I mean, this is statistically proven that they were pretty much the worst one seed in NFL history in terms of how they were winning games, you know, how how they were dominating games, yards per uh, yards per play, turnover battle, time of possession, all that stuff, um, yards per carry, what, how they were doing against the run. Statistically, they were not a very good team. And so it was almost like an anomaly that they were able to win so many games. So I think this year Atlanta was kind of like a perfect storm for them. And, and I'm not, by no means am I not saying that they're not a good team, but I, I, it felt more like a 10-6 team yeah. than a 13-3 and three team. And, on it, you know, if they had had to go to Seattle or if they had had to go to San Francisco, they would have gotten beaten a lot worse probably by both teams. Well, but, and it uh, – and, and, and yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think they can maintain winning 13 games in a regular season uh, playing like that. So they're, they're going to have to get better. Well, and – and here's the thing for Atlanta, which this I love to twist the knife on Atlanta fans. I mean, and Andrew, the last three years, Atlanta has won 37 games. And their last three years have been, regular seasons, have been as good as the Saints' previous three, where the Saints went 13-3, and 11-5, 13-3. The difference is the Saints won four playoff games, and a Super Bowl, Atlanta has one playoff win in that time. And, you know, the thing is it becomes harder for, for, for a fan base. And, look, the Saints, we'd be in the same position if the Saints hadn't won a Super Bowl is you get to the point where the regular season is just – it's people just – they're like whatever, whatever, whatever. And all it comes down to is can you win in the playoffs? Can you win in the playoffs? And the thing is, Andrew, it, it – it really wears on the fan base because you don't enjoy the regular season because all you define it by is playoff success. And now, look, the Saints was the was the was the defeat last year to San Francisco horrible. Yeah, but at least we didn't have the guillotine hanging over us of we've never won a playoff game, we've never won a Super Bowl, and the golden years of the Saints are getting flushed down the toilet. And I think it's just going to weigh on Atlanta more in 2013. Ralph, I mean, it's a carbon copy of the the Saints in the Dimmoir era. I mean, we we lived through this. I mean, yeah. you and I grew up with kids where those Dimmoir teams were, were fantastic, and they had um, some seasons, you know, that, that playoff loss to the Falcons and the playoff loss to the Eagles, where 
we really felt like, you know, besides San Francisco, who is clearly the best team, you know, we at least had a great show at the NFC Championship, you know, and, and at worst, that's where the Saints belong. And uh, they just they couldn't win in playoff games. And so that's what we grew up with as youngsters. And, and it, it, it I mean, you remember as well as I do, they wore on the fan base big time. Yeah. Because, you know, and, and I think for some of our younger fans, you know, they think, oh, the Dome's the loudest and, and you know, the Saints fans are the best. That's absolutely true. Uh, but it hasn't always been like that. Now, I think you can say, you know, the Saints fans have put up over the years with a lot of shit, and so the fact that they've stuck around is impressive. But before Katrina, they weren't selling out games. You know, they, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, remember, like, some of those games in the 90s when they were even going to the playoffs, some of those 50 years, they were having to, uh, I mean, it was blacked out until the last second. Like, it was blacked out like where you couldn't even watch it on TV, and sometimes they would sell enough tickets on the last day for the game to the blackout to be lifted and you could watch it on TV. And sometimes it wasn't. And so, you know, you had to listen to WWL if you weren't in the stadium uh, because you weren't going to get to watch it. So, um, you know, fans, I mean, have always been passionate, but I, I would not say that they have always been the greatest fans in the NFL. And, you know, fortunately for me, and, and I think, Ralph, maybe you're like me, I was young enough during the Jim Moore era that I didn't put up with all the shit that preceded it. And so because of that, um, I was hopeful. You know, the, the old Saints fans, my parents, my uncles, my aunts, my yeah. grandparents, you know, and, and my parents' friends, that, you know, there was very much this attitude of same old Saints, same old Saints. You know, they're just going to blow it again, and they would always call them the Saints. And, and after a while, you know, as a young fan, you know, I didn't have that, that memory. So I, I was I was like, no, no, they're going to do it this year, and I was real positive. And, and they would blow it, and then it was just like once that happened, the fan base would pile on, like same old Saints, we love them, but they're losers. And after a while, like as a kid, that that starts to weigh on you. You're growing up in this era, and all these, you know, your 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 previous generation is telling you that your team is shit, and it, you know they might they might pick it up a little bit in, in the regular season, but they're never going to get it done in the playoffs. And after a while, I started to get that same attitude. Yeah, you know? I mean. And, it is, so it is. I think the Falcons are, are right in the thick of that. It's just feeling that exact same way right now. Well, I think that's. I think that's that is completely true. And look, you know, if the Saints had blown that playoff game against the Rams when Akeem drops the ball, I mean, that would have been that would have set the Saints back a decade because yeah. the Saints winning that game thirty-one to seven with about eight minutes to go, and it nearly burned to the ground. And if Akeem doesn't fumble, it would have burned to the ground. Um, you know, I was at that game, Ralph, and when the, and the, when the Rams started making that comeback, you could hear a pin drop yes. in the Superdome because every fan in there was just saying, "Oh crap, here we go again." Yeah, but that was just a that was just a, a, a it was a that was as we go with Saints way back machine. That was a that was a thing where the Saints I think they lost two corners in that game, so they literally were like out of p- people to cover at the Rams at the time who were the greatest show on turf. Like the Saints were just literally out of players, and the only thing that saved them was a fumble and the clock. Um, yeah, and Brian Milne. Yeah, and Brian Milne. So I mean, it it you know you you get to that point, and you know to me. With with Drew Brees, I just don't have that feeling. I mean, that's why the the Kansas City game this year was just one of those things. You're like, what the fuck? They were, you know, you're getting ready to turn on the Red Zone channel and, and enjoy a leisurely Sunday, and they just gacked it up, which really it hadn't happened during Sean Payton era. But we'll see, we'll see. I, you know, I don't want to spend you this just, podcast. You just had to bring up the Kansas City. I know, game. I did. God damn it. <laughs> but you know. Um, well, and I was talking about Atlanta, but this is something that me and Andrew emailed and talked a little bit about. We talked about it before the podcast started, and we emailed back and forth today. Andrew wants to go off about the just horrific coaching gaffes, clock management. Uh, Atlanta was terrible at it. New England, Tom Brady, who's usually really good at it, he was terrible at it yesterday. Um, San Francisco did something that Andrew wants to talk about at the end of the game. But what the hell, Andrew, is going on with these teams, and they're just – the clock management 
is just piss poor, and it's not bad teams. It's not like Andy Reid and Romeo Cornell. It's Drew Brees and Tom Brady. I mean, what the hell is going on with these teams and the clock management? I don't know, Ralph. I don't know if it's poor management or, or, or maybe there's something to be said with all these blows to the head starting to take their toll. You know, some of these aging veterans making these mistakes. But, you know, countless examples that we can list, you know, with you just mentioned the Breeze botch. Um, the Saints had another opportunity earlier this year where there was about a minute left in the half, and Joe Vick could have called a timeout, but instead of calling a timeout, uh, he let the other team run the clock all the way down to three seconds and kick the field goal before halftime. It was like, why wouldn't you give the football to the best offense in NFL history for a chance to at least get a field goal, you know, before halftime? And, you know, we've seen it countless times with Les Miles um, this season, and, and we've seen just numerous numerous things from numerous coaches, and in the NFL especially, that I just don't understand. But anyway, what really set me over the edge, Ralph, yesterday <laughs> was the Falcons and the 49ers. Now, granted, once the 49ers got the ball back, I was severely on edge because I'm screaming at my TV for the love of God, 49ers, finish them alone. Do not let Matt Ryan back in this thing. Do not let the Falcons get the ball back. And, of course, they let him get the ball back. But what set me over the edge, Ralph, was there was about a minute left and the Falcons had two timeouts. So, you know, worst, worst absolute case scenario you gave them the ball back with about 15 to 20 seconds left with no timeouts. Worst case scenario. So that is what happened. But they were running out of the shotgun. <laughs> they were handing off out of the shotgun. I do not understand why they didn't put their quarterback under center. Why would you take that risk, Ralph? Have we not learned anything from Matt Ryan earlier in the game having a shotgun snap hit right in the middle of his chest? and dropping the football for a costly fumble that pretty much blew the game for them. And there was just so much that could go wrong. The center could snap it over the quarterback's hand. You've got a quarterback that's pretty much a rookie. I'm pretty sure he's shooting his pants in that situation because he's never even been in a playoff game, and all of a sudden it rests on him catching a, a, a shotgun snap with the entire stadium going screaming at him. And he, he, could, he could drop the football just like Matt Ryan did earlier in the game. And, and this is just situational awareness, Ralph. I mean, it's just football 101. And in this year, more than any other year, and I don't understand why, these teams are just making stupid decisions. And it just makes no sense to me that a team would go out of the shotgun for a handoff. I mean, just go out of the eye, classic handoff, put two hands on the ball, fall down for a one-yard gain, and let them burn all their timeouts, run the clock down to 15 seconds, and punt. And they're so lucky that something didn't go wrong. I just it, it baffles me, Ralph. That yeah, I mean, seen it time and time again this year. Well, the thing that baffles me just at the end of the game, if you're if you're a team and you have decided, look, we're in a second and long and third and long and they are out of timeouts and we're really not trying to get the first down. Why not just line up in victory formation, even if you're going to have to punt at the end? And I know you say, well, we could break a long run and pick up the first down. Yeah, maybe you could on second and 15, but the more likely is you're not. So just run victory formation. So even if you have a screw-up, it's a giant pig pile, and at least your guy can be at the bottom of it. I just think, I just think teams aren't, Andrew, teams aren't getting better at figuring out the clock, teams are getting worse. I just, um, yeah. I, I feel that way. And Ooh. I mean, you know, and, and to me, it was really apparent that a lot of the clock, I always just kind of assumed with the Saints that the clock management was was just breeze, was so sharp, and he is. But I thought it was like 80% him and just like 20 to 30% Sean Payton. I don't think so. I think it's like probably 60% breeze or 65% breeze and like 35% Payton with the the clock management and stuff at the end of the games. I really think that, and it showed up this year, you know? Well, if you're, if you're the Saints and you're LSU, you know, I, I think you know, those are the two teams that I lost in most routes. But, yeah. Uh, and I've seen some glaring mistakes from those two this year. And certainly there's been – Well, to be fair – To be 
to be fair, Andrew, Les Miles, he doesn't even realize that football is a time sport. So, <laughs> right, very true. I mean, we have, clearly he's got a, a long laundry list and track record with this stuff. But I, I think, you know, in college, there's less liberties for, for the players. You know, I think it's more on the coaches because they don't give the football the, the players on the field the ability to read defenses and call audibles and, and manage manage the line scrum. I mean, it's really the coaches are, are directing everything. So that falls more on less miles. In the NFL, they give a lot of rope to the players, and especially players like Drew Brees. So I think in the NFL, it's a little bit more on a guy like Drew Brees to handle that situation appropriately. But I, I think at the end of the day, these things are so obvious, Ralph. I think some of these guys have taken for granted their knowledge of situational football. And I've seen enough times over the course yeah. of this year people watching the most obvious football situations that I think it would behoove them in the offseason to really brush up on this stuff. And it may seem obvious, but, okay, situational football, it's the, the key, there, there's, there's two minutes left, you know, so you know they're going to get a two-minute warning to stop the clock, and, and they have one timeout. How does that affect your play calling? You know, what, what do you do? You know what? With the third down, do you run and run the clock all the way down in the 30 seconds, or do you throw and try to pick up the first down? Those are things that you need to be thinking about and that you need to be prepared for in the offseason. If I'm Sean Payton, I'm looking at these mistakes, and I'm not taking for granted that even though these football players probably know this stuff and should know it, that's the kind of finer details that I think are important and help you win games because – We've talked about the countless times the margin in these games is so small that it's really fine-tuning and preparing your team and your players for those situations. Um, If you handle them properly, you're not going to have some of these massive mistakes that end up costing you. Yeah, I mean, you know, just the clock management things, I think Bill Belichick has really – he's he's the best at it and game situations and that sort of thing – but it's just it's just simple things that I think a lot of people take for granted. Just that conventional wisdom that isn't so. You know, it's one one of my think one of the people I like is Michael Lombardi, and he talks about clock management. He says one of the things that drives him nuts is a team say right before the two minute warning will take a timeout with like two o five left, and you know people will think well that's good because that makes them run another play before the two minute warning. But he says that's bad because what happens is if a team has a third down and it's 2.05 on the clock, they can do whatever they want because they know the clock is going to stop at the two-minute warning. If you hold your timeout and you wait until the two-minute warning comes and then they have a third down, well, then they have to make a decision. Well, if we throw it and we don't complete it, the clock stops. Or do we run it and try to burn more clock and make them use the timeout? He's just like people don't really study the clock and all the scenarios and don't know how to make it work. And I think it's true. I mean, I think if you just look at certain coaches that have been, I mean, like Andy Reid, he's really successful, but he's horrible at at doing the clock. Lovey Smith is horrible at doing the clock. Now, you can make, Norv Turner, you can make the argument, look, of all the things that a coach needs to do, we, we, you know, fans, we obsess over the can they get the clock right and this and that. And it's really, it's not on the list of things you would want of a head coach. It's not um, that high on the list, I don't think. But it's one of those things like how can you not, if you could be a coach and you can be brilliant and you can lead man and you can get them to win nine to twelve games a year, how can you not know how to manage the clock? Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Ralph. I think it's down on the list in terms of, you know, what do you want out of your head coach? Is he a good leader? Is he a good teacher? Is he a good manager of personalities? Is he a good uh, adjust adjustment you know, person? Is, is he good at um, making decisions on the fly? You know, I mean, you know, those are all characteristics that I think you want in a head coach more so than being, is he a good recruiter? You know, is he a good yeah. salesman? I think those are all things that are more important than, and does he manage time well? Um, you know, so, but unfortunately for some of these guys, they're so good at the other stuff that, um, that teams hire them at the expense of them not being, um, good time clock managers. But, but 
I'll, I'll say this. It blows my mind, Ralph, that I truly believe I am more advanced in, in that category in terms of knowledge of situational football and knowledge of what you do with the clock and where it is and what you should do in given situations. The fact that I feel like I am mentally more advanced in that category only over numerous head coaches in the NFL is a scary thought. Because I don't think that highly of myself, you know, in terms of my football. Well, the, the I'd like to think 99% of these coaches are better than me at 99% of, of everything. But but the, the fact that I consider myself at least better than a couple of these coaches at anything it, it is kind of – that, that doesn't speak well of me. That, that means it's really scary. Well, the thing I think it is is I think it's a combination of – there's so much chaos on the sideline. The clock becomes one of those things that in all the chaos, if you've ever been on the sideline for even a high school game, if you, the chaos on the sideline can be quite interesting if you're, if you're not used to it. I think NFL teams should seriously look at – they have 900 assistant coaches anyway. Have a guy that's the clock coordinator and – when it's the end of the game, the coach clicks the button, and instead of talking to the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, whoever, he talks to the clock coordinator and says, clock coordinator, what do we do? And that's the guy's job. He says, coach, there's a minute and a half left. It's second down. You need to call timeout. You need to not call timeout. You know, just I don't understand why they don't do that. I mean, hell, they have coaches now. All they do is their job is to look at the replay and tell the coach whether to challenge or not. I mean, so if you can. I think it's a great call. I think it's a great call, Ralph, because there's so much parity in the NFL. I mean, if you look, you look at any of these teams that are top seed in, the, in their conference, and look how many games they had that were seven points or less, you know, one score. You know, and you know that basically the entire game was hanging in the balance of the final drive, you know, and Teams, let's say they go 13 and 3 like the Falcons. How many times this year did they have a game come down the wire? I would say of their 16 games, I would say at least at least 11 or 12 of them. Yeah, you know, and you know what that means, Ralph? Instead of being 13 and 3, they easily could have been 6 and 10 if they just had the worst luck. So based on that, I, I think making a hire like that would be very smart. You know, and I, when I think you have a guy that's studies all these situations where he knows everything um, and it would help your team not, not blow it. Because, uh, I mean, listen, some of these games are so close that sometimes the difference between being having an incredibly high football IQ and being an idiot is the difference between you winning win, and, you know, one person. Well, and, and here's here's what I think a team will eventually do. It might be the Patriots, it might be somebody else. Eventually, teams are going and football. They're start they're starting to do it a little bit, I think. And I think I think a team like the Saints, just listening to Joe Vitt with all the statistics that he uses, I think actually the Saints are one of those teams that look at the starting to look at the advanced football statistics. And I think eventually one of these teams, Andrew, is going to hire a guy from Pro Football Focus or fo- Football Outsiders, and they're going to say, hey. Give us just just keep doing your advanced statistic work that you do, but also all this research that you've done on clock management on game day, you're going to be up in the press box, and that's going to be your job. We're going to call you football analyst nerd guy, and we're going to pay you, you know, and we're going to pay you. You're going to start out. You're not going to, you know, they probably won't have to pay them anything. We're going to pay you thirty-five thousand dollars a year. You're going to be a football analyst during the week, and on Sunday, you're going to be clock management guy. And I think. What's going to happen is one or two teams are going to start doing it, and it's going to, you know, but but it's going to take sort of a a coach that doesn't have an ego that says, you know what, I'm going to farm out doing the clock because I've got so many other things to do. I think it's like a macho things with coaches. They don't want to admit, yeah, I've got 900 things going in my brain and I can't do the clock too. So it's a macho thing. I think it's going to take a coach to sort of step out on the ledge and say, yeah, I've got a football nerd. Uh, He's 30, he's a virgin, um, and we have him in the press box, but he's awesome with the clock, and I go to him. And yeah, I know. I mean, Haslett was the worst at that. Yeah. Having this attitude of, you know, well, obviously you know better than me. I'm just a football coach, and you're you're a fan, and you're a media member. So, and you know, he always had this kind of crass attitude, like, you know, just this, you know, attitude of, you know, I'm a football coach, and, 
you know, you would you would be in the NFL too if you knew better than me. So everything I say is absolute, you know. And so yeah, basically absolving himself of, of any yeah. of ever being wrong or ever being questioned because we're inferior minds or something. But um, no, I definitely think there is a, a mentality, especially in a brute sport like football, where there's this macho thing where you can't admit that you make mistakes and you can't admit that um, you know some guy might not be better than you at something. So, yeah. um, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's already infiltrated the NBA. You know, advanced statistics yep. are um, a major thing in that sport, and, and it's, you know, it's a Bible to some teams have adopted it so much so that it's a Bible. I mean, you look at Billy Bean in Oakland, their whole philosophy, they don't care about players at all. And, you know, there's no – the human element has been almost completely removed in Oakland, and those guys are just about stats crunching and numbers and, and – uh, advanced statistics. So, um, it, it, football, I, I say, it's a little bit in the dark ages or in the stone ages in terms of um, coming into a new age of technology. In terms of, and, and the fans have embraced it. You look at fantasy football and all this stuff. The fans are kind of more new age, and, and I think the game still stays a little barbaric, and it, it's still a lot of it is based on feel and gut. And uh, the advanced stats, you know, you look at PFS and uh, what's the other website we always Football Outsiders. Yeah, Football Outsiders. Like, that hasn't really infiltrated the game in, in front offices and, in, you know, the GMs as much as it has in baseball and, and basketball. But at some point in the near future, I, I think you may make a very astute and smart comment to say that um, it's going to come. And it's, it, 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 I'm surprised, Ralph, that it hasn't come yet. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things I like about Sean Payton is that I think he embraces it to a certain extent. And then look, Sean, all great coaches, Bill Belichick, they're all arrogant. And if you try to tell them, you know, they're wrong, they're going to f- push back against the media. It's just their instinct. But I will say one thing about Sean Payton is, you know, about four years ago, he was like, I suck when I challenge. When I when I throw my flag, why do I suck when I throw my flag? And he looked at it and they analyzed it, and to a certain extent, especially the last three years, he's fixed it and he's a lot better at it. Um, you know. Well, I mentioned I mentioned Hazlitt, Ralph, and one of the things that I couldn't stand <laughs> about Hazlitt was that he was never he was so hard headed. He was never willing to admit he was wrong, and you know the Jake Delhomme and. and Aaron Brooks situation was a perfect example of that, but um, that, that you're absolutely right. Sean Payton it is it has always been willing to look at himself, self scout, and say, you know what, I, I was wrong. This is this is a bad decision, and so okay, you know, and he digs deeper. Why why was this a mistake? And then let's correct it and let's improve. And uh, I I think you've got to, to be successful in the NFL as a coach. You have to have that mentality. The minute you start thinking, you know, it's kind of like the attitude that Brees has. If you read, read, read his book, he says, you're always getting better, you're getting worse, you're never staying the same. And head coach has to have that attitude, too. Um, and, and I can promise you that Jim Howard would never have that attitude. Yeah, and I think, look, teams are always going to, whatever you did the year before that was awesome, teams will always look at video in the offseason and try to fix it. Um, speaking of coaches with the Saints, they're trying to get Carmichael an extension. I think that's probably going to happen. Cromer's gone, um, you know, and, you know, the Saints, I know that I read on WWL, Bradley Handwerger said, look, you know, we're not worried about it and this and that. But to me, Andrew, it's so, it so screws them because Sean Payton very well may be sitting out there saying, I want this guy, but he can't contact the Saints to say, go get, you know, say, say it's Tony Sperano. He can't contact Mickey Loomis and say, or, or Joe Vitt and say, go hire Tony Sperano. I know him. I don't need to be there in the interviews. Go do it. He can't do that because that would, you know, he can't talk to the Saints. And he can't talk to Sperano. Um, well, maybe he could because Sperano's fired. I don't know. Maybe he could Maybe he could talk to Sperano and say, why don't you call No, Payton's no. not allowed to talk to any, anyone that's uh, affiliated with the NFL, whether they're in, in a or not. Because you know, remember – when Breeze was technically not under contract, there was this whole thing like, or Breeze and Peyton talking. Yeah, that's right. Um, but no, he, he's not allowed to talk to anyone that's affiliated with the NFL, so period. Makes, yeah. he, he is allowed to talk to Benson. Um, yeah. That's the one thing that's come out is that he has been allowed to talk to Benson um, throughout. So 
based on that, I mean, maybe he could, you know, flip something on Dunson and I'm going to think, okay, go hire this guy. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I mean, look, he, he let's not let's not kid ourselves. He may not be able to directly contact people, but I'm sure if he really if he really has a guy in mind that is especially like Sperano, where like they have a history together, I'm sure Sean Payton can get a message to him and be like, Tony, wait a week, you know. Yeah. And it's yeah. not and it's not coming directly from him. It's coming from his agent or whoever, you know, so I still think that's who it's going to be. It's going to be Sperano because he ran a running game. He did it in Dallas. He was, he was offensive assistant in charge of the running game. I mean, it's just Sean Payton wanted to bring him here. I think that'll be a good fit. Um, another thing well, I want to talk I'll tell you, I'll tell you what worries me about that situation, Ralph. Is What's that? I think if, if all the starters are coming back, it's fine. Um, if the Saints lose Bushra, um, then I start to get a little bit more concerned about Cromer because I don't think the starting left tackle on this team is on the roster right now. Yeah. And so losing Cromer, I think, becomes a bigger blow if they've got a new player that needs to develop at that position. Well, that's the case. And I, I look, if Bushrod, if Bushrod leaves, which I think it's like 50-50, Andrew, and look, I know we go back and forth with Bushrod. People who listen to this podcast are probably like, Jesus, they're talking about Bushrod again. But as of today, Andrew, I just, when I was driving home today, I thought of all the teams that needed a tackle because I was listening to the NFL and Sirius. All the teams that need a tackle, Kansas City, Chicago, where Aaron Cromer's going, Jacksonville, Philly. Philly. Buffalo needs a tackle, uh, the yeah. rate. The Raiders, San Diego could use one. I mean, you got at least six. Like he's getting a he's getting a big contract. The Saints, this, I think the Saints are going to have to pay him about if they're going to keep him. They're going to have to pay him about seven, seven million dollars a year, eight million dollars a year. And I don't know if the Saints are going to go there, Andrew. So I think it's fifty fifty at best that he's back. Yeah, and I, actually, Ralph, I think him making the Pro Bowl is is bad for the Saints. As crazy as that sounds. Um, he got in thanks to um, the Falcons losing. Um, or I'm sorry, yes. Yeah, uh, so Joe Staley of the 49ers was supposed to go. And now that he's headed to the Super Bowl, um, yeah. he Bushrod gets the call up to the Pro Bowl. So uh, I actually think that hurts the Saints because um, you remember when when he was entering free agency at the time, he was kind of a rising player that people didn't really know and they were like, yeah, he's a decent left tackle but, you know, the Saints offered him a decent two-year deal and it was a lockout so we don't really know how that affected teams financially and everything. Um, so, the Saints were fortunate to get him back, but this year, um, you know, since then he's been to two Pro Bowls now and I do think teams, not every front office is created equal. Some aren't very smart yeah. and some are pretty desperate, like you said, for tackles. And I think when, when you're an agent and you're trying to convince teams to sign your client, um, those are good buzzwords to have. You know, and, and, and when he was entering free agency last time, he didn't have the buzz, buzzwords. He's entering it now with a guy saying, look, this is a two-time Pro Bowl left tackle for a Super Bowl champion. Show me the money. Yeah, you know? And I think I, I think that, that commands more respect and potentially more money than last time he was entering free agency. And look, you know, another team that needs a tackle that's, an, that's if, if Bushrod wants to maybe get paid and stay with a team that can win, Green Bay, their offensive line's terrible. Aaron yeah. Rodgers got snot kicked out of him in the playoff game against San Francisco, and he, if he wasn't so mobile, their offensive line would look worse. So they're a team that you could throw in the mix. To, that needs a tackle. So uh, the more I think about it, I just think it's I think it's fifty fifty at best. Which then Andrew, if if Bushrod leaves, then then you know we'll get into this later as the offseason goes along. But then the draft is just chaos because then you have a gaping need that is of utmost importance. Drew Brees' blind side, where everything in the draft changes, and if the Saints don't get the second round pick back. Then, you, then they're really in a bind. So, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a the, the whole Bushrod situation is, to me, it's not maybe you know, as last off season where they had a bunch of people. But to me, if if Bushrod leaves, 
it becomes a it bec- it can be a domino process where Bushrod leaves, then they might have to pick a tackle, and then you don't have a second round pick, and then we look up after the draft, Andrew, and we're like, man, the defense isn't that much better. They haven't really added anybody. You know, Ralph, I think the situation is going to set up exactly like the Paralympics one, where the Saints are going to have, you know, Lims is going to crunch his numbers, and he's going to say, okay, this this is what we can offer Bushrod, and this is what he's worth to our team. And then the question will become, uh, they're not going to pay him seven million. I just don't think that they're going to pay him that much. So the question becomes seven million a year. So the question becomes, is he going to give the Saints a hometown discount, or is he going to leave like next um, for more money? And um, so I, I think it will come down to that. And I really do believe that uh, Bushrod is a little bit less hungry, money hungry. And I think he's a little bit more loyal of a guy than Carl Nix. But yeah, but is he, you know, Carl, Nix talks, got ridiculous. Carl Nix got so ridiculous I, money, though. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, he's not going to get Carl Nix type money, but um, I still think someone will come in and offer him more money than the Saints are. So the question will become, does he, um, you know, give the Saints a hometown discount or does he leave? And if he leaves, um, I think we'll see a similar situation to the Ben Drub situation where the Saints will – then look at the next best tackle available, um, and they will say, all right, you know what, we were willing to give this to, to Bushrod, and so now we're willing to give it to you as the best tackle in free agency, and, you know, we'll replace it with another solid, capable player in free agency and, and give them the same contract they would have given Bushrod. So um, I, I think that's how it'll play out. You know, and I agree with you, I think it's 50-50, um, whether Bushrod just takes what they offer or if they end up giving the same deal they offer Bushrod to the next best tackle in free agency. Yeah, I mean it, it'll it'll be uh it'll be really really interesting to see um to see what to see what happens um cuz they have they have teams with a with a ton of money. Um you know, and and look, the Saints they they did fine with with um with you know, with Ben Grubbs. I mean, it it um you know, he granted is he Carl is he Carl Nix? No, but he got half as much guaranteed money. So um, he was a very solid player this year. Very yeah. Solid. You know, and uh, um, you know the 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 thing is though, I mean they have, I mean you look, you could go, um, I mean they have they have Jake Long is a free agent. He's injured. He was injured with Miami. You have Ryan Clady for Denver. You have Brandon Albert for Kansas City, Volmer for New England, Andre Smith. So I mean there there are some guys out there you that the Bush Rod may not get that crazy of a deal. <laughs> what's that? Well I'm but but with I mean all these names you're throwing out there, and I think these guys are all better than Bush Rod. Yeah, I mean the thing is though, I mean if you're the if you're the Saints, do you say, you know what, Bushrod, you can get, you know, um we know that you 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 can get eight million from Chicago, but if you're the Saints, do you like, you know what, we're gonna get Sebastian Fulmer for New England for five, and we only have to guarantee him ten. You know, I mean, right. and the thing is, the Saints are the thing is with the Saints, the Saints are still a destination where they do not. They had to overpay Breeze, but they can still get the guys at their price because a player like Vollmer, if he gets offered from, let's say, Jacksonville or the Saints, and it's the same offer, he's coming to the Saints. Whereas, yeah. you know, with Hazlitt or whatever, they had to overpay. The Saints don't have to now. They can say, look, Vollmer, you really want to go to Jacksonville? No, you don't. Come here, and, and they'll they'll get that. So. The 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 uh, the Bushrod thing will be will be very very interesting. I, I think you're right, you know, because it's it's absolutely critical, Andrew. Because I just from what I see with, with with Goodell, I don't think they're getting the second round pick back. For one, Goodell is just being a dick about the whole thing, and two, I hear that he saw the Crew de Vue parade and he saw the floats of Roger Goodell fucking a dog. Roger Goodell climbing out of a vagina, and he got upset. And the Saints aren't getting the second round pick back, Andrew. They're just not. Well, he was pretty vindictive, so it wouldn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> By the way, how great how great was uh, Scott Shanley trolling the Falcon fans on Twitter last night? 
Did you catch that? I did. I tra- I caught the the first photo of the Super Bowl ring and the subsequent about eight of them where it was game balls and it was the specific game balls that he got when they played Atlanta. And it just made me love and appreciate Scott Stanley even more. And I know he caught a lot of crap from Saints fans, but let me tell you, Saints fans, the, the Saints in 2006, you forget because it's a long time ago, but their linebacking core was atrocious. Mm-hmm. And they got Scott Stanley for a po' boy and a six-pack of Dixie beer. And their linebacking core, because of him and Fujita, went from atrocious to average, which under which was at the time a humongous upgrade. And not only that, Dude. they got Dude. seven freaking years out of Shanley. Starting years, yeah. Yeah. No, he, he did really good. no I, it was highly entertaining, Ralph, because uh, – you know, if you actually went on his timeline, you could read his responses. Yeah, you can you can just see it in your own feed. You have to go to the timeline, but he was responding to everyone. So all these Falcons fans that were talking trash to him would respond to him, and you know he would post something like, "All right, you, you know here here's uh you know statistically here's something you know that talks about my career." And then he said, "But warning, you have to read. And, you know you have to be able to read in order to understand it." Um, so he basically was taking a jab at Falcon fans that they're all illiterate. And uh, one Falcon fan that specifically said, um, how funny is it going to be when the Saints trade your ass next year to the Falcons? And his response to that person was, uh, I would never play for the Falcons. I would retire first. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like brutal. Uh, but, I mean, he just had some awesome comebacks um, to some of these people. And, and some of them, you know, would just write the most non- – I mean, classic Atlanta fan uh, would just write the most nonsensical insults to him. And, you know, he would just be like, you know, stay classy Atlanta, you know, classic response from a Falcon fan, um, you know, and just jabbing at them on being illiterate. And, I mean, he, he, was literally, he was clearly bored and going all out on just messing with Falcons fans and kicking them while they were down. And, uh, I mean, he was just awesome. It's basically what the angry Hudak does on a daily basis. And, and Scott Shanley just decided, you know what, I'm going to be an angry Hudak for, for about three hours here and really, uh, you know, stoke the fire, you know, while, while, the, while the fans are pissed that they just lost. So, um, you know, as much as I hate the Falcons, it's so great to see a player feel the same way. I mean, that, that is just awesome. Well, and look, I mean, we're, we're going to have this debate, and you, you, you might think I'm crazy, but uh, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I think Scott Shanley is a borderline Saints Hall of Famer. I look at him, and you look at some of the people that are in there for the Saints, like Joe Fetterspiel, and I mean, uh, you know, I think you can make a case for him being in the Hall of Fame. I'm not saying I'm not yeah, saying I mean, I'm not saying I, he's I, a lock, him, but he's a, it's, you can make the case. Is Hobie Brenner a Saints Hall of Famer? Oh, I don't know. That's a good. That's a good. I think he might be. I kind of feel like he's along those lines, like. Not quite as good as Stan Brock, but he's had a career kind of like a Hobie Brenner, where Hobie Brenner put in a good workmanlike 10 years. I mean, longevity-wise, especially in this day and age, Shanley has lasted forever with the Saints, and he's put in some solid years. So he kind of had a, a Hobie Brenner-esque career with the Saints, where um, he just always showed up to work. He was always a starter. Um, you know, the Saints brought in John Tice. They brought in all these people to try to beat Hobie Brenner out, and he just kept being the starter. And it was just like that with Shanley. You know, they brought in Dan Morgan. Yeah. And they brought in uh, – who was that, who's that linebacker? Uh, God, uh, Clint Ingram. Yeah. They brought, they brought I remember, and he, he couldn't cut it. Yeah. And uh, they brought in all these free agents and rookies and draft guys and to beat out Shanley, and Shanley – withstood everything they threw at him. They're like, no, I'm still the starter. And this is the first year, finally, with Hawthorne and, you know, Vilma coming back from injury and Lofton that he's kind of been half the side. But, um, I mean, even at the beginning of this year, he was still the starter, even with that, so... Yeah, and look, and look, if Jim Wilkes is in the Hall of Fame for the Saints, I love Jim. Jim Wilkes is one of my favorite guys. He played for like 10 years. Played, Frank played, Warren and Wilkes. Yeah, guys didn't go to the Pro Bowl. But just work. I mean, look. I'm not saying he's a lock, but I'm saying that he's a guy that it wouldn't 
stun me if he gets in the Saints Hall of Fame. And I think I think he's one of I think he's one of those guys that you know he gets he's caught a lot of crap from fans, but you know if the Saints could draft a player that was just one level better than Scott Shanley, if I told you Andrew. The Saints will draft a player that's 15% better than Scott Shanley was at his peak with the Saints. They'll draft that player in the second round, or you can have what's behind door number two. What would you take? Oh, I would I would say if you can do it to me that, I would say who, who do I have to blow? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, uh, Andrew, before we let you go, because we probably won't talk to you before the Super Bowl, uh, who do you who do you like? And who are you rooting for? I, unfortunately, am rooting for San Francisco because in Vegas I bet them uh, when they were 9-2 to two odds. So I win about 200 bucks if they win the Super Bowl. So I'm rooting for San Francisco, and I hate the murdering Ray Lewis. Uh, so that's what I'll, I'll be rooting for San Francisco, and I think they'll win. But what about you? What, what do you think will happen, and, and who will you be pulling for? Well, this is brutal brutal for me because uh, I do feel slightly indebted to the 49ers for taking out the top. I mean, it, they're, you know, and I, I tweeted this, you know, that Vernon Davis is absolved of, of his past sins against the Saints in the playoffs uh, based on what he did to the Falcons and just make sure they came nowhere near New Orleans. So I feel a little indebted. And, um, you know, I, Jonathan Goodwin is, I mean, obviously one of my favorite players in the NFL. Just a great dude. Um, and, you know, former Stane. And so it would be great to see him win another title, but can't stand Frank Gore, can't stand Harbaugh. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of owned us the last couple of years. So bitter, don't like them. There's a historical factor. And like you said, with the Ravens, I mean, there's the whole Ray Lewis thing. Don't really like him. So uh, it, it's a tough one, man. But I think be, because of Jonathan Goodwin alone, I think I'm going 49ers. But, I think most most Saints fans don't want to hear that. I feel like most Saints fans are probably pulling for the Ravens. Yeah, I think so. I I, I think so too. I, I just I just I the thing is, and I said this in my column for WWL, Ray Lewis bothers me because he's he look he was convicted of obstruction of justice in that murder trial, and you could say whatever you want. I I think he was heavily involved in, in that murder that happened in Atlanta, and I don't like I mean. Tim Tebow, people knock him because he talks about God this and God that, but at least he walks the walk. It's not yes. his fault that ESPN thinks he's a quarterback and covers him as such. But Ray Lewis, he talks about God and this and that, and he's on a journey, but he doesn't walk the walk. And it yeah. just, and I'm not a religious. It just not religious. It just he just bothers me because I think it's all a big freaking act with Ray Lewis. Oh, I mean, he, he's, uh, he's constantly calling attention to himself and overly dramatic. I mean, him crying during the uh, uh, the national anthem yesterday was just a farce. I mean, it was just so absurd for him to be, you know. I mean, it was just stupid. And I he knew the camera was on him and he was you know, playing it up. And so I, I can't stand Ray Lewis, but um, as far as who I think is going to win the game, I, mean, I think um, I think this is a fantastic matchup. I think it's two teams with maybe slightly above average quarterbacks. But that's about it. Um, you know, the 49ers, the Smith guy for the Ravens is a, so fast and terrific field stretcher, and then they got Anquan, who is a nice possession receiver, and Pitt of the Titans really coming along. And they're right. I mean, their offense goes to Ray Rice. 49ers, same thing. Offense goes to Frank Gore. Uh, both defenses are elite. Uh, I think the 49ers defense um, is slightly better, slightly faster, slightly more aggressive. Um, but I, I was not impressed with the way they played against the Falcons. I mean, they picked it up in the second half, but um, Julio Jones and, and really Roddy White, too, uh, embarrassed their secondary pretty badly. So um, if Blacko gets hot, that could affect them. So I, I don't know, but I think San Francisco maybe has a slight edge because I still think their defense is a little bit better, and I think they have a quarterback that's just a little bit more explosive than Kaepernick than Taco is. So I think I give the edge to the 49ers, but I do think it's going to be a really good game because 
is at the end of the day, two oh. teams that play very good defense and run the ball well. So I think this is going to be a little bit of a throwback game, Ralph, and I like that. Yeah. That physical smash mouth football. They might throw some wrinkles in there along Castle Smith for the Ravens and the bread and butter. And the 49ers, you know, it's kind of that option read game with Kaepernick. So, you know, they're going to have some explosive plays and some things that will happen that will surprise us. But um, when the game comes down to the wire, uh, you're going to see two physical, powerful football teams with big offensive and defensive lines that dominate the trenches. And these are two teams that are built the same way. Um, so I, I, I like that there's kind of going to be that that style, that, that kind of homogeneous game where both teams are trying to do the same thing. It's going to come down to which one does it better. Yeah, and the thing I like about Baltimore is I love Torrey Smith. And I tweeted it that, you know, if I it was almost yeah if I could have one player off of all the teams from yesterday and just take them and put them on the Saints it might be him and I know you're probably thinking defense 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 but to me Andrew yeah. if you put Tory Smith on the Saints he's like Devery Henderson and Robert Meacham but better he's he yeah. he runs better routes and he's got better ball skills I think I think you put him on the Saints the Saints offense would be a freak show and unstoppable. Because Flacco's not that accurate. You know, Flacco will hit Torrey Smith for every four times he's open deep. Flacco will maybe hit him twice. Yeah, he doesn't have a great deep ball. Yeah. I mean, you he know, hits him. Yeah. But, and I just think Drew Brees, I mean, with Torrey, it would just be it would just be fantastic. But anyway, everybody, go to SaintsNation.com. Read his stuff. Of course, he's going to have draft stuff. He's going to have offseason. Um, and it'll be, it'll be here before you know it. Uh, you know, because once the season ends, you got Senior Bowl, you got all that stuff, and it 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 really, the NFL nowadays, Andrew, it doesn't really stop until the draft is done. You know. Yeah, no, you're right. And hey, Ralph, when we um our next podcast can it be at midnight after the Super Bowl? <laughs> so it's the official uh, Sean Payton payment party. Yeah, we Why? could we could what what we should do is we should get some bar to sponsor it and we should go to New Orleans and we should set up in the in the parking lot of the of the Saints training facility. <laughs> All right. All right, for Andrew Juge, I'm Ralph Marlboro. Thanks and we'll see you next week. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.